To start off today with a sermon, let's go to John 1 and verse 1. We're going to go back in time as far as we possibly can. John 1 and verse 1. It's interesting, she was talking about the ancient eternal light. We're going to the very beginning, the beginning of everything. Not Genesis 1, but John 1. As we read in here in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. As Mr. Armstrong used to explain, this is the real beginning. A glimpse of the time when there were only two beings, God and the Word. No earth, no sky, no universe, not even the angelic realm, just God and the Word. What did they do? Have you ever thought about that? How did they spend their time? Well, there was no day because there was no earth, so, um, and there was no time as a function of the movement of the universe, so maybe we need to re- reword that. There was no time, and yet they inhabited eternity. What did they do? They lived in the spirit realm before anything we are familiar with, and yet it's, it's because of that it's so hard for us to even to imagine what it would have been like. Now, of course, we have a description of the third heaven, the throne of God. And uh, that helps us to understand a little bit of what we could see if we could see the, the spirit realm. But beyond that, it's, it's really hard for our brains to comprehend what life must have been like for God and the Word. Let's go one step further. That they were el- alive for eternity past. Just how long is eternity? How many eons does that count for? You know, and no matter how long you go back, you could always go another day back, right? Well, again, we can't use day because that's a function of the the earth spinning. But no matter how far we go, they lived longer than that, right? And it's at this point where your brain starts to short circuit and starts to fizz and moan a little bit. The wheels are spinning, but they're not getting much traction because we can't comprehend something with no beginning. What did they do? Again, as Mr. Armstrong explained, they created, they worked, they made things. John 5, verse 17, Christ said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So they did something. They worked. And perhaps lived... For eons and eons of time, if we can use time as a measure, we don't have numbers to describe how long they lived, but we'll use the longest, largest number in our vocabulary, which was a, is a Googleplexian. Googleplexian, for you note-takers, that's G-O-O-G-O-L-P-L-E-X-I-A-N. Now, what is a Googleplexian? A Googleplexian, by definition, it's the largest number in our language. 
It is a one followed by a Googleplex of zeros. Okay, so that, that should answer that question. But what's a Googleplex? Okay, Googleplex, that is a G-O-O-L, I'm sorry, G-O-O, G-O-L-P-L-E-X. What is a Googleplex? <clears throat> well, that is one followed by a Google of zeros. So now we're getting closer to understanding how big this number is. What is a Google? No, it is not a search engine. It is way before Google ever found themselves online. It is G-O-O-G-O-L. And it's defined as one followed by a hundred zeros. One followed by a hundred zeros. So there you have it, the largest numbers in the world. <clears throat> and if you look up googleplexion.com, I think it is, on the Internet, you will find a one with pages and pages and pages of zeros, and at the end, an etc. That's, that's how they describe it. The largest number in the world. So even if there were a Google Plexian of years and eons and light years, it still wouldn't describe God's eternity, would it? Going back that far and beyond. It's just way beyond our comprehension. At any rate, for some unnamed length of time, God and the Word existed. No angels, no sun, no earth. We don't know exactly what they did. We can imagine, we can try to imagine, but our mind kind of breaks down. But you know what? We do know something else, and it's immensely important. Actually, it's even more important. We don't know exactly what they did, but we know how. They lived. We know how God in the Word lived. What do we mean? <clears throat> they lived in a state of at one meant. They lived in a state of at one meant. They were in harmony. They were unified. They were on the same page as we say today. They were singing from the same sheet of music as we say. They were two beings. They were existing as separate personalities. Certainly had different opinions at time to time, as any two beings would have. We read later that Christ beseeched God to find any other way when he was about to lay down his life. And yet, at the end of the day, he said, No, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to the will of the Father. They were at one totally with one another. There are several examples of how Jesus Christ described his relationship later. John 6:38, he said, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. John 7:16, he said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. You know, you can read all through the book of John and you can find how closely they were aligned and at one. Let's turn over to John chapter 14, <clears throat> and we find an example here. John 14 and verse, verse 7, he was talking to his disciples, and he said, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. 
And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, no, they weren't the same being. No, they weren't different manifestations of the same person. They were two separate beings. Very, very clear when we put all the scriptures together. And yet they were one. They were one in harmony. They were totally unified. They had the same goals. They had the same purpose. They worked together seamlessly. He says, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So that is really what we see. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Let's go there very quickly. John chapter 10 and verse 30. He says, verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We are one. And that sums it up. Brethren, as we are thinking about this day, the Day of Atonement, one of the central themes that comes out is the Day of Atonement is about reconciliation. It's about becoming one and being one. In fact, the Oxford Dictionary explains the origin of the English word atonement this way. It is early 16th century denoting unity or reconciliation, especially between God and man, from at one plus ment, influenced by medieval Latin adunamentum or unity, and earlier one ment from an obsolete verse, one to unite. So as we think about today and as we observe this Day of Atonement, which has so much meaning for us, let's think about their relationship, God and the Word, and what it means for us and ultimately for the whole world. If you want a title for today, simply at one meant. At one meant. God and the Word existed, again, for perhaps a Google-plexion of years or more. We have no idea. But after an indeterminate amount of time passed, they created other spirit beings. We won't go through all the scriptures, but uh, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So they created a spirit world. This is nothing new. This is something that we're familiar with. And so for perhaps another Google Plexian of years, this spirit world existed. And how did they exist? What was the state of the world at that time? For perhaps billions and billions and multiple billions of years and light years and however we can put a name on it, God and the Word were together at one. God and the Word and the entire spirit realm were together at one for billions of years as eons went by. And then at some point, the physical creation was made. <clears throat> and we read in Job chapter 38, 
Job chapter 38. Let's go ahead and turn there uh, very quickly. Job 38, we are picking up the story now. As already many multiple eons and billions and gugaplexians of years had gone by, now what do we find? We find a physical creation. Job 38 and verse 4. God said, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? To, who, to what were its fa foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So we read that the angelic realm at the creation of the world, the, the physical world, shouted for joy. They were excited. They were happy. Brethren, again, try to imagine this. Our world with its conflict and with its pain and its disconnectedness, that's our frame of reference. But it wasn't this way for billions and billions and billions of years in the time that God and the Word lived, in the time that the spirit realm was created, even into the time of the physical creation. Everything was harmony. Everything was working together really, really well. At one mint was the state of the world. And then something happened. Something happened that had never happened before in history. Someone, one being among the billions and billions of angels, one being chose to go a different way than at one mint. Let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. You know the story. <clears throat> you know where I'm going. This is no surprise. We read about Lucifer's fall. Lucifer's decision to choose a path of contradiction to God and the angels, which had been the way of life forever and ever. As far back as you go, this was a new thing. Ezekiel 28, verse 11, notice. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were beautiful. The sardius, the topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Apparently beautiful music that Lucifer was capable of. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Now think about this. We're not, we're, we'll read the rest later, but think about this. What was the nature of Lucifer? It was working in harmony with everyone else. And extrapolate that description again to the whole creation. Everything worked well. Now, it was not a never-never land. <clears throat> For you Star Trek fans, you know, 
you who are familiar with Star Trek, you know, there, there sometimes were episodes where Captain Kirk and the crew would find this, this utopia, this paradise land where everyone walked around with kind of a half smile on their face and kind of floated along and everyone was happy, happy and kind of half zombie-like, uh, you know, robots. Was that the way that this was for billions and billions of years and all eternity past? Everyone kind of walking around kind of in a Star Trek zombie land? Captain Kirk and the crew finally said, we got to get out of here. This is crazy. This is nuts. Brethren, that, that's not the way it was forever past. It was a time of excitement. It was a time of working together. It was a time of many different beings. It was a time of cooperation. It wasn't a, a, a sort of never, never land. <clears throat> where there was never any, any disagreement or never any uh, different opinions. They were separate beings, but they worked in co- cooperation. But something happened. Ezekiel 28 and verse 15, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Lucifer made a decision that he wasn't happy with unity with God. He wanted to go a different way. And from that point onward, we find a very different world. Verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Seems to be a, a, a indication of his ultimate fate, <clears throat> where he is going to be finally put down, and he will be responsible for what he's done in bringing sin into the world. We know that Satan was not content to just separate himself, but he wanted to spread his misery to others as well. So he uh, drew one-third of the angels, the stars of the heaven, as we read in Revelation 12 and verse 3, and threw them to the ground. And we know that this horrific battle took place, and they busted up the house, so to speak, you know. And the earth was not beautiful after that battle. The earth was unrecognizable. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Now we pick up the story as, as time has gone, gone on. Again, he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the, of the deep. We understand that this word, um, the earth was, <clears throat> should be, became, the, the definition, one definition is to fall out, to come to pass, to become, or to be. So in other words, God did not create it in a, in a state of being without form and void. He created it beautiful, but something happened. And that, of course, was the rebellion of, of Satan in the battle that followed. These words, uh, without form and void, without form means formlessness, confusion, unreality, or emptiness. Total contrast from the creation before. 
I think the best part of that definition is the word unreality. The earth became unreality. In other words, it became the anomaly. It became the exception. It had been so good from time immemorial past. And it became the unreality, the anomaly, the mistake. And that's the world, of course, which we inherited. God cleaned it up. We understand that. But he did not take away sin. He allowed sin to continue. And we have inherited this world. It's not the real world in that sense. It's just the hiccup. This world was at one for eons of time. And as we're going to see in a little bit, and as we are going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and we're going to keep the last great day, we understand the end, that this world will once again return to a state of at one mint and will be forever. So really, this time is just the blip on the radar that we're living in, though it's all we've ever known. So, you know, sometimes we can think this is normal. And Satan wants us to think it's normal. This state of confusion, state of destruction, state of sin, state of heartache. God allowed Satan to interject this attitude into our first parents, and it's been that way ever since. Now, the question can come up, why didn't God just take Satan out of the way when he sinned? Wouldn't that have been a better method of dealing with him? Well, of course, God knows best. He knows what he's doing. And it seems that he has been allowing sin and Satan to go on to test us, to test all of humanity, to let humanity prove which way will you go? What do you really want? To be in concert with God and his plan and his purpose or be in opposition? We know that that God pretty much figured that sin would happen eventually. Revelation 13, verse 8 says, The Lamb of God was slain before, slain from the foundation of the world. So he, he knew it was going to happen, but he allowed Satan to be around. Let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1. 23 and verse 1. What does this tell us, what does this day teach us about God's plan, and about the process of bringing mankind back into a state of at which was from the beginning, which was the way the world was for billions and billions and Googleplexians of years. What's the process for bringing that back? Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1. We know this is the chapter of... The holy days, we read in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. They're not our feasts. They're not the Jews' feasts. They're not anyone else's. They're God's feasts. And as we have heard already, what a fantastic privilege that we are invited to God's feast here in just a few days. Verse 3, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So every Sabbath that we come and meet and worship, it's a reminder of who we are. 
It's a reminder of the plan. It's a reminder of why we're here. And then, of course, the holy days focus us even more. Verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. We understand that Jesus Christ came to give his life for a sacrifice because of that very act of, of sin by our first parents who were influenced by Satan the devil. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To the Lord, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So we understand it's not just a profession to go God's way, to go towards at one meant. It has to be a pattern. It has to be a way of life. And that's, of course, what we learned through the days of unleavened bread. We drop down to uh, verse 15. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, uh, that during the uh, unleavened bread, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So then we, we keep Pentecost. And why? To learn that it's not under our own power that we can become at one with God. It is impossible by ourselves to become unified with God. And that's what we learn through Pentecost. So we need God's help. We need His His Spirit. Going on, he says in verse 23, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So, of course, we kept the Feast of Trumpets not long ago. And what is that? Well, that is a reminder that this age will not last forever, that Jesus Christ is going to intervene and bring this madness to a close. And thank God for that. And make it possible for at one meant to occur. He's not calling the whole world yet, but he is going to intervene, and he's going to intervene, and the whole world will then be taught. Now let's skip uh, to verses 33. Verse 33, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. There's a holy convocation on the first day. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. So, of course, that's what we will be doing, going to the Feast of Tabernacles here in just a couple of of days. Again, the Feast of Tabernacles is not portraying some sort of weird Star Trek-like, zombie-like people walking around for a thousand years, you know, with their smile kind of pinned up so they look happy. No, it's going to be real. It's going to be real people and real projects and real problems and real issues. But finally, they'll be taught real solutions to deal with those real issues. And, of course, the last great day, which pictures the whole whole of mankind having the privilege to come back to life and say, I want that too. I want to be at one with God, and that's better than the... The way that I lived, that's better than what I knew when I was alive. And thank God for that. 
but we skipped one. <clears throat> what has to happen in order for this to occur? Verse 26, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and you shall do no work on that same day. For it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Again, the word atonement means reconciliation, but it literally, the English word literally has to do with two becoming one and really has a central, central part of this day when we think about it. <clears throat> Let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. As we're thinking about how God will bring the whole world into a state of being at one with Him. That's what, that's what it's all about. That's what we're here for today. Leviticus 16 and verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So there was a specific time and way that the high priest was to come in. And this pictured God's very throne, so it was very important. Verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull of a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering, and he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. That was signifying righteousness and ultimately signifying that this represented Jesus Christ being the high priest, our high priest. He was a type of, of Christ fulfilling this function as our high priest. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on his. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two goats, kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Now, <clears throat> hold your place there for a moment. We're going to come back. But let's go over to Hebrews chapter 9, if you will. Let's get a picture of this, of what this is representing when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus Christ performed this role when he gave his life, and he shed his blood. And this is exactly what it was referring to. He says, He is a mediator of the new covenant for by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal 
inheritance. God is bringing the whole world into a state of at one meant. That's why this symbolism was there. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16 and verse 6, we find that he would offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the, the scapegoat. This word scapegoat really is a bad translation. It should be Azazel. That's the Hebrew word. And it literally means one removed, complete removal. It's not that Satan is, is kind of wrongly or falsely blamed for the sins of mankind. He takes on his sin for himself. Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat or Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So the live goat is slain. That also is representing Jesus Christ, of course, for our sins. Notice, let's go to verse verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Notice in verse 13. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat, which is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. We get the picture. This was the throne of God. Aren't you grateful that the, the throne of God is called the mercy seat, brethren? That it's not the, the throne, it's not the seat of harsh judgment. It's the seat of mercy. And also think about what this picture would have been as the high priest was going in and sprinkling the blood of the bull and then also of the, the kid, the, the, the goat that was slain that represented Christ and sprinkling it on the seat. You know, it would have been kind of messy. You know, because we do have forgiveness, because God is merciful, because we are under the new covenant, covenant, I think sometimes we can forget that sin exacts penalties every time. That sin is bloody. That sin hurts. That sin destroys every time. And every time that we sin, that you sin, that I sin, unless we have a covering, unless we have a way to bring us into a state of at one meant, we're going to have to pay for our sin every single time. This was a dramatic reminder of just how destructive sin is. And destructive, this idea that Lucifer came up with, which is, I know a better way. I don't want to be at one with God. I know a different way. Notice in verse Verse 15, the goat 
uh, of the sin offering is killed, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do that with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, so he shall make atonement or at one mint for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. Notice verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel. Not that the goat is unfairly taking their sin, but he's being held responsible for his part in their sin. He shall lay both hands over it, confess over it all their iniquities and transgressions, and put them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. He will be separated. Now, this, we understand, is ultimately Satan finally being taken away from humanity, which will happen on this day. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 20. It will happen. This day is foretelling that. This day is prophesying that. And as we're walking through this day and we're keeping this day, Satan hates this day because of what it represents for him. Revelation chapter 20 and verse verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And we understand in later on that his ultimate end will be in the lake of fire. Now, brethren, God is saying to Satan, if you want to be separate, if you don't want to be at one with me, you will have your wish. You will be separate. Again, the azazel means one who is completely removed. I'll remove you, and I'll remove you from spreading your cancer to others. That's what this ceremony represented on this day. And at one meant being possible, because he's taken away. Brethren, do we see the picture? Again, at one meant was the state of God and the word and the angelic realm for however long we can't comprehend it and it will be forever and this day represents the end of this small amount of time that we call human history in which sin has been in the world it's going to end and someday Someday we're going to look back and we're going to think, remember that billions and billions of years ago when we were still human beings? Yeah, that's right. It's hard to think back. It's hard to remember that. But yeah, that's right. I remember. Oh, man, that was that was kind of bad. That was kind of um, a rough time. 
because I was having to pay for my sins. And I had to deal with pain and, and being disconnected and sometimes in conflict. Yeah, that's hard to remember because it's so far back. Because we will live at one. You know, this, I think, as we are thinking about God and the Word, just imagine how excited they are at this point in history to be so close to this day being fulfilled and so close to all of this beginning to unravel when, when this whole period of, of man being separate from God and not being at one with God. And this day is crucial for that. Let's turn over to John chapter 12. Because God wants to be close to us. He wants a close relationship with us. That's not anything new. We understand that. But Jesus Christ wants to be close to us. Notice, He gave it all for that purpose. He went all the way so that we could be close to Him. John chapter 12 and verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And we're even closer today than then. Just imagine how excited they are right now as we are here observing this day and walking through what's going to happen. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was talking about how he would die, but how he would be, through that process, he would bring all mankind into a possibility of being close to him at one. What an amazing day. You know, this day, if we're not careful, we can just start to think of it in totally theological terms and and analytically, but brethren, it's very personal. Think about what it means for our relationship with God, that we who are baptized, we who are being converted, we who are not yet baptized but are still walking with God and still allowing the Holy Spirit to work with us, that we can have a relationship with God. And what does that mean on a personal level? How important is that? To all of us. Let's turn over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. This day shows the answer. This day shows how that separation from God can be erased. We know that our sins separate us from God. We we read that in Isaiah 58, uh, 59, sorry. But this day shows the solution of how that can be rectified. James chapter 4 and verse Verse 7, he says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, choose which way we're going to go. 
Are we going to seek a, a, a relationship with God and are we going to seek being ever closer with Him in a relationship of at one meant? Or are we going to go our own way? Are we going to go the way of selfishness, of lust, of greed, of all the things that Satan the devil stands for? God wants to pull us close to Him. We have to choose to fight. And here we come to a fundamental part of this day and a fundamental part of fighting and letting God fight for us as we draw close to Him. Notice we find it in verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Yes, this is a day of, of rejoicing because we understand the, the end. We understand what's going to happen to Satan the devil. But at the same time, it also is a day of mourning and weeping. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a day of, of, of mourning because we humble ourselves. He's the one that lifts us up. Why do we fast today? <clears throat> Why are our stomachs empty? And I'm really sorry to bring that up again. I know. Now you're all thinking about it again. I'll try not to do that again. Well, no, I probably will have to here a few more times. Why do we fast today? What does it have to do with the Day of Atonement? With regaining at one minute with God? Well, fasting teaches us to be humble, doesn't it? It teaches us where we really stand and how much we need God. What was the root source of Lucifer's downfall when he decided to go a different way than God? Was it not pride? We read that before in Ezekiel. So we are fasting to conquer our pride so we don't fall into the same trap that Lucifer did of arrogance and conflict, and so we instead can draw near to God and let Him draw us near. Verse 4, notice, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says, In vain the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's saying again, we have to choose. Which way are we going to go? Friendship with the world. If we're taking that way, if we're imbibing of that, if that's the way we identify with the attitudes of Satan the devil, that's going to make us enemies with God and there's no way we're going to be at one with God why do we fast <clears throat> to humble ourselves why do we need to humble ourselves to eradicate pride why do we need to eradicate pride because that was what led Lucifer to say I do not want your way God so what does this mean for us let's bring it down to a, a personal level God is wanting to have an at-one-ment relationship, us to have an at-one-ment relationship with Him. Do we have that? Are we experiencing that? <clears throat> Are we fellowshipping with Him? 
You know, we have His Spirit so that we can do that. Notice Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We find in, in many different ways and places it's only God living in us that we ultimately can have at one mint with Him. We can't do it on our own. He says, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In the flesh we can yet please God. If Christ is living in us through His Spirit, He said. That's what He says. There's no condemnation. He says, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh or those who follow the flesh or those who identify with Satan's wavelength cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of of God, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship by whom we cry out, Abba and Father. You know, the prospect of separation from God is terrifying, isn't it? Absolutely terrifying, you think about it. Being ultimately separated from God. And it should be frightening, you know? And that's why we need to be sensitive to the lead of the Spirit so when we get off track, as we all do from time to time, that we're not as close to God, that we can get back on track. We can be sensitive to the urgings of the Holy Spirit in us and not quench it. God has given us a means to be close to Him. And that is, of course, through Christ living in us. Brethren, are we allowing ourselves to be led by God? Or is there any corner of our life that we're saying, God, that's not for you? Is there a closet that has a sign that says, no trespassing, even God? Or are we letting him reign in our life totally. We examine ourselves at Passover. But really, atonement is also a day of reflection, a day of self-examination, of humbling ourselves to decide which goat we're going to follow. The one being separated out into the wilderness, the one who chose pride and vanity and competition, or the one who chose to be close and connected and at one with the Father. Let's break it down even further. If we love God, do we love our neighbor? First John chapter 4. Verse 17, he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have, may, may have boldness in the day of judgment. God does not want us to be afraid of the future. And when we draw close to God, we don't have to be afraid of the future. Because as he is, so are we in the world. This world, there is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? In this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So what's he saying? We can't really be fully at one with God unless we're striving to be at one with one another. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can do it any other way. In fact, it seems that God has given us human relationships so we can practice being at one. Any of you who are married in here, you don't have to raise your hands. Do you remember what was read at the marriage ceremony? Remember the scriptures that were read when you pledged your lives to each other? Ephesians chapter 5, notice. Let's review a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5. You promised to become one. One. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28, it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, certainly one flesh has a physical uh, application, the marital relationship. But we understand it goes way beyond that, doesn't it? It goes to have a, having a harmonious relationship, to working together, to supporting one another being on the same page. Of course, we disagree from time to time. But we work together. And in a sense, as he's saying, it's an opportunity to learn how to be at one with God because Paul is saying this is a mystery, but the marriage relationship is a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. It's a parallel with our relationship with God. Husbands and wives, do our marriages reflect that? Are we striving to? We become one. Not to lose our own identities, of course not. Not to become a doormat or not have our own opinions, but to work together. Husbands, are you really striving to love and cherish your wife? I was going to say wives, husbands, wives, but that... Grammatically, it makes sense, but I know none of you have multiple wives. So, husbands, are you striving to love and cherish your wife, period, singular? Especially when she is unlovable. You don't have to raise your hands, but has your wife ever been unlovable? Remember, the command to love your wife has no caveats. There is no asterisk next to it as long as she is lovable. 
No conditions. It's a command from God. You do your part, husbands, without regard to how she's treating you at the moment. Wives, are you really striving to respect and honor your husband as your head, even when he does things that you don't feel deserve respect? I won't have the wives raise their hand. There are any times when it's hard to respect your husband. Again, the command to respect your husband as your head has no caveats. It's a command, unconditional, from God. Verse 33, notice, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's our responsibility in marriage. Now, certainly if our mate sins, we have to deal with that, don't we? We have to deal with it. We get counseling. We work through it. I'm not saying to just brush that off. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of the conflict in marriage is not from sin. It's from personality. It's from hurt feelings. It's from toes being stepped on. It's from pride. And we can work through that if we humble ourselves. And this day is a day to think about becoming at one with God. But we have ways to practice in life, don't we? In our relationships. On this Day of Atonement, let's not just think about the big picture. Let's not just think about theology, you know, so to speak. Let's think about how it applies to us. Let's think about what it means for day-to-day decisions. What if we're not married? Well, God is also telling us to learn to love everyone as we are one body. Notice Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak. Am I in the right place? That's really a good scripture, but I think uh, think we want to... Well, let's just finish it. It is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Don't be unwise, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Brethren, we all have that responsibility, don't we? If we are walking in the light, if we are walking in righteousness in the Spirit, we have a responsibility 
to submit to one another in the fear of God. Again, it doesn't mean we aren't going to have disagreements from time to time, different opinions from time to time, but we strive to love one another and support one another and forgive one another. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We read about a ministry of reconciliation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to reconcile all to God, and we are to be reconciled with each other as well and love one another as brethren. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus Christ, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What? Is written in the law. What's your reading of it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that talking about and describing what we're here for today? Becoming at one with God and becoming at one with one another. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, what was he really saying? His real question was not, who is my neighbor? His real question was, do I really have to love everybody? Come on. I mean, you know, look at how many people there are. And do I really have to love all of them? Of all things, you're asking too much. How did Christ respond? He told a story. He answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Note carefully, what did he do? He removed himself. He separated himself. He wanted distance between himself and this man. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by the other side as well. He wanted separation. He wasn't thinking, this is my brother. I have a responsibility for him. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Now, I've known a few Samaritans in the past. In the Philippines, there's an island in the Visayas called Samar. And we had um, a minister from there some years ago. And we called him our good Samaritan. So... There are some good Samaritans even today, and I think some more who live there uh, even now. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I... Come again, I will pay you. 
So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Love your brother as yourself. Brethren, what is the lesson? Who is our brother? Any human being in need. Who are we to love and be loving to and supportive of? Everybody. And yet what often keeps us from loving one another? Is it not our pride? That's why we fast. That's why we're humbling ourselves before God. in our relationships with one another, to be slow to anger, slow to speak, swift to hear and listen and understand. You know, my mother used to say that when we were small, three boys and two girls, we, uh, we behaved so well on the Day of Atonement. And you know what her secret was? Same secret you guys have, you all have. We fasted. And it's amazing what, at a certain age, we began to fast. It's amazing what low glucose levels will do to rambunctious and and, and energetic children. You know, all we could do was just kind of sit there and moan, whoa. And as, you know, the hours wore on, and finally there's 15 minutes left, and whoa. We didn't have any strength to argue. We just wanted to sit around and go, oh, and moan. Now, brethren, as grown-ups, we fast to humble ourselves. And, you know, isn't it amazing when we deal with our pride, when we conquer our pride, when we let God smash our pride and dissolve our pride and whatever He has to do to our pride, how much easier it is to give others a break, how much easier it is to not take a pound of flesh, how much easier it is to forgive and not overreact. We won't always see eye to eye with everyone. We'll have disagreements, sometimes strong disagreements. That's okay. But what keeps us from looking down on others even if we disagree? It's because we know that God sees value in that other person. That He gave Jesus Christ for that person too. That He wants an at-one-meant relationship with that person too. They are made in the image of God too. They have the potential to shine like the sun too and turn many to righteousness too, as we heard in the offertory. When we see God working in each other, it's a huge step towards becoming at one with one another, even if we disagree from time to time. Part of the lesson of this Day of Atonement is not just being reconciled with God, but with one another. You know, as we have more and more new people as well, as as God calls newcomers into the truth, Part of loving our neighbor is, is making the effort to not just talk to our close friends, isn't it? 
Not just talk to those that we are most comfortable with, but get out of our group and include others. It means a lot to new people. It means a lot to newcomers and outsiders to be included and welcomed. Let's make sure we're all making that effort as well. We can all improve. We can all do better on that. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. Again, why do we fast? Just to go through the motions in obedience to God and, and, and meanwhile cut and hurt and devour one another? That doesn't make any sense. He, Isaiah chapter 58 and verse, verse 3, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we t- afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. Does it change us? Does it affect us? Do we become more at one through it? You fast to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do on this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this the fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? To bow down his head like a bulrush and spread out sackcloth and ashes, would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Or is this not the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, as we heard in the offertory. What is God really looking for on this day? As Mr. Seselka read, verse 8, Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. That's a close relationship. That's being at one with God. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. You know, who do we point our finger at? In our life, are there things that we need to change, but instead we're saying, well, you know, he's doing that or she's doing that. They're my problem. I'm not the problem. Brethren, this is the day to look at ourselves. And he says if we do that, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Doesn't that sound wonderful? In a time when we are going into, when we don't, may not know sometimes where our next meal is coming from, but to have that close of a relationship with God and with one another, that we can be in that state that He will satisfy your soul in drought. 
Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repair of the breach, the restore of streets to dwell in. The repair of the breach goes right into the millennium and the new world coming, and we can be part of those who are repairing the breach, who are setting the pace, who are teaching others and showing by example how to be at one with God, how to be at one with neighbor. What an incredible opportunity. Not a make-believe world of Star Trek. You know, and maybe even sometimes Satan has a, a hand in some of those concepts that producers come up with to make it look like a so-called perfect world would be absolutely unpalatable and almost present a counterfeit so that, well, why would you want God's world? Why would you want a world where there's harmony and peace? Brethren, it's going to be wonderful, isn't it? We're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles here for eight days, and how great is that? It's a reflection of harmony and peace. In the millennium. Now, this world coming is more real than ours today. It's going to be a renewal of a world that existed for eons of time before Satan rebelled and will exist for eons of time after he's put away. And that's the world we are striving for. That's the world we are struggling to be in. And that's the world we are preparing for. This day is about at one mint and God bringing back into a state of balance and equilibrium and absolute love the whole world. Jesus Christ in the last hours of his life talked about this. Notice John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and and we will conclude here. John 17 and verse 20. Amazing. Just amazing. You know, when he was facing this incredibly bitter pill and some awful hours, absolutely terrifying time of his life. And yet what is what was he thinking about? What was he praying about? Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, he said, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us here today. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He was thinking of our opportunity to be in a state of unity with him. And he was excited about it. We read in Hebrews how for the joy that was set before him, he went through all of this suffering. He was thinking about our being at one with the Father and at one with him. I think this is one of the most moving passages in the whole Bible, especially when you you think about the conflict that was going on at that time. The conflict between the world that Satan the devil had created through his opposition against God 
And Jesus Christ willingly laid down his body to be torn apart by that world so that he could bring in all mankind to be at one with him in a new world. And he was praying about that right here. He was willing to do it. He entered that holy place once for all with his precious blood. And it would mean all of us, all humanity, all who desire it, could attain oneness with God in Christ forever. So much meaning. Verse 22, he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Brethren, we have a front row seat in one of the most exciting times of all history. We're being given the honor and responsibility to be first fruits in the millennium. If we're willing to yield to God's plan of bringing all things once again into a state of at-one-ment, everything, every being in the whole universe, in the whole world, what a fantastic experience it will be to live in that world. Let's thank God for this day. Let's have a great and strengthening and inspiring Feast of Tabernacles. Let's get the big picture of what God is really doing, of what we're a part of, and let's go all out to seek at one meant with God, at one meant with Christ, and at one meant with one another.